Hey, just a heads up that the following content may be disturbing or triggering for some listeners and is not appropriate for children. Please take care of yourself and others who may be listening with you. Welcome to the Bonus Babies Podcast, a show that has no easy answers, only hard questions. What he's saying in the poem is that the tenacity to live is greater than the scars from the struggle to live, right? So you looking at the damaged petals, you looking at the fact that it's kind of leaning to one side, you looking at all the superficial elements, not knowing that it, even those are connected to the, the rose's struggle. For there even to be a criticism, to be a knock on the scars. It's the, we the roses that grew from concrete. You know, we, we came from a struggle uh, uh, backwards. Can you tell me what you call the kids who you've cared for over the years? We feel that the children that we receive coming into our home are bonuses. So we call them bonus babies. I love that. This is your host, Jane Amelia Larson, and I'm Akasa, a court-appointed special advocate volunteer for youth in foster care. Yeah, I know, it's a mouthful. In the same way Akasa works, I explore all things in the foster care maze by talking to kids, parents, caregivers, attorneys, social workers, therapists, really anybody and everybody who will speak to me to keep the conversation open and the information flowing about all things CASA. Hi there, this is Jake Eberly, the producer of the Bonus Babies podcast, and it's season three. We've got a lot of great guests coming up this season, so please check in every week and uh, have a listen. Today, Jane Amelia speaks with former foster youth Adisa. Adisa compares himself to a lion cub who had to fight for survival all his young life against the bigger, badder lions. Born in Long Beach to a single mom who was declared unfit to raise her children, he grew up on the streets of Los Angeles. Unfortunately, Adisa and his siblings were removed from his mother's care. Adisa was only nine at the time, but already considered himself a hoodlum, as he says and was the protector of his youngest brother, who was still in diapers. He became part of the foster care to prison pipeline and was incarcerated at 17 until freed at the age of 51. He's been out now for three years, and he's employed with Urban Alchemy in San Francisco's Tenderloin, cleaning up the streets and saving the lives of vulnerable people every night. Here's Adisa. Hey, I'm here with Adisa. Hi, Adisa. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. How you doing? Hello, hello, hello. Um, you're in San Francisco, right? Absolutely, most definitely. Tenderloin mm, Central. Nice city. And you're from Long Beach originally. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about where you're from, how you're raised? How'd you grow up? Uh, single parent, Long Beach, California, on the east side. Her family, my mother's family, who I grew up with, came from Jackson, Mississippi. Jackson, Mississippi. Yes, yeah. yes. So So she was a country girl, your mom? Yeah, absolutely. Most definitely. Yeah, she became a city cat though. Yeah, right? she became definitely became a city cat. <laughs> yeah, tell yeah. me about that. So, you know, growing up in the South versus being in in, you know, California was from different than what I believe they knew, which they admitted it was, you know, California versus the South. So the whole racial whatever that they experienced there was less where they were at. So my mother was the baby girl. She is the baby girl. 
So being the youngest and having sisters that were almost 20 years older than you, you, you know what I mean? So when they came to Long Beach, even though she had started off in Jackson, Mississippi, when she got to her teenage years, they were in Long Beach, California. So I think it was 10 kids. She, it was 10 of them, uh, uh, seven boys and three girls. That's like my family, except we're five and five. Right. <laughs> exactly. So it's like, you know, they're from the South, you know. So, But what I did uh, recognize and uh, took notice was that a lot of the family members moved to one house and then spread it out. So we moved basically around, essentially around the corner from my grandmother, which is my mother's mother. And... Other family members moved to the west side of Long Beach. Some moved to two blocks down. But the family was, you know, that generation stayed in close proximity as opposed to the family members who moved up north to Oakland, California. And you were removed from your mom's care when you were young. nine years old. Yes, young. Very, very young. And you remember that? Oh, yeah. I was removed. I was telling somebody the other day that me and my brother... I have a brother, I have five brothers, but my youngest brother, one of my youngest brothers, uh, Rashad, we were actually taken from our mother together. He was born in 79, I'm born in 69. So we actually went into foster care together. And he was still in diapers? Absolutely. Right, so you told me that you became his protector. Yeah, that's the, I'm the only thing he knows, whether I'm the big brother and he don't like me because I won't let him watch whatever, and he's throwing a tantrum. The, the guy that he's throwing a tantrum against is the only thing he knows amongst everything else. Right, because you were moving to a house with a woman that had a lot of kids and grandkids in it, Yes, right? we went to the Long Beach Police Department first. And from the Long Beach Police Department, we went to a foster care home in Compton, California. And yes, yeah, she did have kids and grandkids and, you know, a whole family that, that was, uh, should I say, living in and out. You know, her house was busy, you know, family environment. And was she loving? Well, feel like that, you were looked after? Well, we were tolerated. <laughs> you, you know, you're not family. I, I, it, it would be hard pressed to say other than that, to, to, to say that, you can go into now. The babies are always welcome. Yeah, you, you, you have to be. On, yeah, right? you have to. Be, you have to be an absolute monster not to love a baby. You know what I'm saying? But when you were ten, and my kind of ten, and what I had grown up with and through, and mm, it was it was different. His was, and what kind of ten was that? Well, I, I had been exposed to the street life. You know what I'm saying? What what what? We call hood life or street life or, you know, my mother was a young woman. So my mother would take off and go someplace in a nine-year-old's mind or eight-year-old mind, St. Louis Obispo. Now, I don't know if that's next to Pluto. I don't know where that's next to. <laughs> <laughs> I just know St. Louis Obispo party. Don't open the door for nobody until I get back, you know? So when you're under that kind of, you know, uh, you can't even call it supervision, but you was forced to grow up. You know what I'm saying? You were forced to grow up. So, yeah, we would be at the parks and it'd be 
10, 11 o'clock at night. And she would come pick us up from the park. But we've been there. That was like home base. Whatever y'all do, come back to this park and I'm going to pick y'all up. So me and my older brother Terrell, who was born in 67, we our, our, our life like that was, that was our normal. And then you ended up in a foster home where there was doors that were locked or they had rules or oh yeah yeah there's certain things you cannot do in other people's homes and for a kid that's always i wouldn't say it was harsh but i mean kids are nosy so now we want to know now i want to know why i can't and so that can bring trouble you know i was a, i was a, uh i was tough i was what you would consider tough you know yeah, but maybe you were also just curious. Yeah, but, you know, as, as you see now, you tell a kid to be in his role or her role or their place from an adult, and you had this 10-year-old kid confronting whatever your authority, that's, that's, that's an issue. Uh, mm. Cross racial or cultural lines, that's, that's going to be an issue. How come you didn't end up with somebody in your family? Well, I ended up, I did. I did. I, um, my uncle, my mother's one of my mother's older brother, who's who has since passed. Uh, my uncle Roger, he lived maybe a half a mile away from, or maybe a mile away from that foster home that I was in. So me knowing Compton, like I did, I just walked down uh, Wilmington and hit 156 and 156th Street and walked to his house. But before he could get me and my brother out of foster care, I was shipped to another foster home in Carson. So I'd already made contact with my, my uncle and his wife, uh, my Aunt Alice. And during this time, I had gone to their house, the foster lady would let, him, let me and my brother go over there, even though I broke the rule to go over there in the first place. But once she knew that my, that was my blood uncle, she didn't really interfere. But of course, I was sent to a foster home in Carson, California, which is Long Beach, which is Carson. It's a long way away. It's all yeah. It's the same, but it's the it's the, basically the harbor area in Long Beach. So I'm not like mm -hmm. at ten. I don't know where Carson's at. Yeah, I know where Carson's at. San Pedro, you know every Dominguez Hills. So when they send me there, now that's when like a lot of things about the foster care system that people, whatever horrors they heard, that's, it happened there. <laughs> it happened there. Can you talk to me about some of that? Oh, just, they let you know that you're not their family. You know, it was the name calling, treating you like you were lesser than, um, you was in the back of the line, fight. I had two fights with their family members in there, um, cussed out the mother. Like I went a young donkey up in there on them people, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I said, I was tough. I wasn't a, I was already a, in the gang life. I already was, I was a street dude. I was that little, but I, I was hung around my uncle who had died. He was died when he was like 21, my Uncle Marvin, favorite, most favorite human being on the planet, beside my mother. So I was a as can be worldly pre-pubescent ghetto hoodlum at 10. At 10 years old. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. F you to the police. Slashed a tire while they was at IHOP. Like, <laughs> oh 
I'm not or, laughing. I'm laughing. No, I'm just saying it's, that's what it is. That's <laughs> you want to prove you tough. Go slash the police tire. Get a box cutter. Poof. I put them all on flat. I'm four times tougher than you. That's the kind of stuff that we was doing. And, you know, I mean, you got to remember, this is the, the late 70s. The black community and any other community, I'm in the black community. So the, uh, going back to knowing these cities and we had friends and family and stuff like that in the area. So stroke of mm, luck or whatever, I just was tr- was in transition from one foster home to another. But when I got to that foster home, it was one of those foster homes where they triggered you. They, they said things to you, like for Thanksgiving. And it's during the time that Sugar Ray Leonard and Roberto Duran was fighting. And so I remember we were, you know, I wanted to watch the fight too. I'm a big boxing fan. I grew up boxing with my, two of my uncles. One of my uncles fought Muhammad Ali in an exhibition match in Hawaii. I love boxing. So you can't watch the fight. Why not? You didn't take the trash out. Uh Uh-huh. But on the post-its or whatever, it's not even my day. Not even your day, but you were blamed for it, so you can't watch the fight. Because they knew you wanted to watch the fight. Not only that, sat at the table, everybody else, we finna eat, and starts talking to me in a, you know, one of those ways that grown folks think they could talk to children. You know, you better take that look off your face. Now remember, this is not my mama. I'm a hoodlum. And F you, you fat. I, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Gave it to her. <laughs> Silver platter. Get it from my table. You can't even get up from your table and walked off. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Wow. Can't watch the fight. You got to be in your room. Took the TV out the room. You know what I'm saying? So that right there, you experienced there. The other one, it was kind of, as I look back, she, you know, she was setting rules. Like, Lil, you're going to buy by these rules. I didn't go hungry. I wasn't abused. You know, things like that. But then my uncle came to court and got me from, and I stayed with my uncle maybe, what, two years, three years? And then in about 81, they sent me to a boy's home. Why? I, Why? Why'd you because his wife, because his wife didn't sign up to raise Adisa, so yeah, it, okay. it was that. Like this woman is like, I'm, I'm giving him hell. Like I am, I'm shooting dice. I'm smoking weed. I'm gang member. I'm. And what was the gang? Insane. Mm-hmm. You know, still out today. Multiplied members in different states. Yeah. So even through all of that, when my uncle came and got me, it was like I understood later on that his wife, uh, my Aunt Alice, you know, she didn't sign up to raise. And they didn't need the money. That, that was also a thing because my uncle was a construction worker. He helped put together LAX. Really? Yes. Wow. So what you're talking about is the foster care business, as one guest has called it, that there are people out there that are doing it for the money. Absolutely. Positively. No doubt. No question. No hesitation. Reservation. That's what it is. You, you, you're there for money. Uh, right. You're a meal ticket. They let you know. Well, both, both foster homes let me know I was, you know, what it was. But it was how they went about it. And you have to remember, I'm not just the, your average 
kid who's in just a bad situation, you know, I know when you smell like weed. I know what kind mm-hmm. of clothes you wear. I know that I know the name of that club because my uncle went to that club. You know what I'm saying? So it's not like you talking above my head. No, you're a savvy kid. Even right. when you think you're trying to spell out a word in front of me, I was a great <laughs> speller. So that didn't do nothing for me but teach me how to do what you just did. Yeah. All right, so what happened in the group home? What was that like? Well, I went to the boys' home first, Children's Baptist Home, 7715 South Victoria, Inglewood, California. I think the wow. the Inglewood Cemetery has probably bought the rest of the land. I'm not for sure. But I went there from my uncle's house December 4th, 1981. It's amazing how you remember all of these addresses and dates and everything. Yeah, see, hustling, that's what you do. When you go places, that's what you do. You're, you're taught, making notes. You're, you're taking notes. Track, you're, Something happens. Mm-hmm. What you going to do? You don't know which street you came down. You don't know what address you was at. You don't know who did it. You don't do, you don't, you know, you just riding. Nah. What so number was that? you're super observant. Yeah. yeah, my uncles and my cousins and my mother taught me that situational awareness. We started early. Understanding where you're at. Harm could come to you. You know, dealing with the police. You had to be, you know, like I would say, I, not to blow it up, but I would say at 10, you know, I, I hung around people who were, you know, had been through the trials of life in our community. I know people who came from uh, Muscles. That's what we called him. Muscles was an old country boy. Uh, Muscles' brother had was lynched. And he came out to California with my family. So they share that experience. So when we used to be outside on 20th and uh, Orange at Muscles' house while he's frying up burgers and barbecuing, he would tell us these stories. So, you know, you're taught to be aware from people who had a struggle even different than your own. So going down the street, I'm not going to get in your car and you're saying we're going to do this and that. And I'm not looking at the street. I'm not looking at the, the you know, what zip code. Even in the, the cop cars have numbers on them. I'm looking at ambulance has numbers. On so I'm looking at everything just to have it in my mind in case there's a jeopardy question. Alex Trebek, rest in peace, asked me a question. I can know the answer, even if it's trivial. So my mind right, developed so like that. <laughs> right, so you're like a Jeopardy guy, but in life. In life. Yeah. In life. Gift the gap, be able to talk to people who you might not even think is, you know, and I can see them because I did it. I lived it. I know people who did it. I've just and and at that age what do what what the hell do you do with a kid like that <laughs> like well you're you're like really understanding about the fact that you're acknowledging you might have been a little hard to handle i'm grown i'm 53 you're grown now so you come to terms with i'm it. 53 years old yeah absolutely i deal with young 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 people going through the throes of fentanyl addiction every day and so i see young kids and i don't come at them from a point of view of not understanding. You know, it's really relatability. So when you get caught up in something, you don't need that one more person to add on to. You know what I mean? You don't, you don't need that. I mean, they need tough love for sure because some of us have the luxury of escape where, 
you know, coming from our community, there there really is no luxury because no matter what you do, drug use. I had uncle came back from Vietnam, was hooked on hop, hooked on heroin. You know, that's all in the, the gumbo of life right there, though. So you know, me being grown now, 53 years old, having done 34 straight years in prison, uh, my understanding, uh, which is what a decent mean, one who makes himself understood, that thing for me is a, is a skill set that I've developed. Right. So you just mentioned that you went in when you were 17. Can yeah. you tell me about that? Gang member. I lived that life like every day as a kid. You know what I mean? It is uh, one of my one of my uh, former crip uh, homies, uh, comrade, said that lifestyle is a singular choice that we make every day, and we made the choice. I made the choice to be a crip every day. But did you feel you had other choices? Nah. Or was that just nah. the before one that I was... even know before I even knew that the choices were choices, like the the weight of the choice, I was already hanging around mm -hmm. and developing these habits. You you understand what I'm saying? So even if I when I learned to play basketball and I learned to play basketball very, very well, I was still a crip playing basketball. <laughs> you know what I'm yeah. saying? So if we go I played for Inglewood High, I managed to come out of a boys' home make the high school basketball team at Inglewood High in 1984. When wow. we went to a game, I would like do gang shit. You know what I'm saying? Hey, cuz, where yeah. you from? What? Yeah. Motherfucker, where you from? You know, yeah. at that age, because that was you my- you couldn't put it behind you, it even wasn't though it was no, a basketball no, game. No. It's like part of your life. This is my life. Basketball, cripping was what I did. Basketball was just some, a hobby. All right. so. Why did you end up in? I killed a teenager who was two years older than me named Jerome Richardson at a basketball game at Poly High on Atlantic wow. and 15th. My, some of my, uh, my homies had been shot December 24th, uh, 1986 at Martin Luther King Park. And one of my homies died. So from that point on, we were tracking and hunting any and everybody who was responsible. He came to a basketball game. And you a, were playing at that game? No. Okay, you were in the audience. Yep. I was hanging out on the street because we couldn't get in the game because the game was sold out. Literally, like Polly is one of those schools. This is Billie Jean King's alma mater. This is her high school. I think Cameron Diaz, Snoop Dogg, I mean, that then dog wasn't, you know, he was a puppy, but he was, he was nobody. But uh, Yeah, it's a famous high school. Yes, and I went, my mother went to that high school, no, the fight song, my cousins, my uncles went to that high school. You know what I'm saying? On both sides of the family, went to Poly. Yeah, so. And you saw your guy. I saw him and walked up to him and basically hit him up. I knew who he was and I shot him. And you were 17. I was 17. I and shot him were, in the face. You were found out and tried it as an adult? Yeah. Well, I was, well, first degree murder. Well, found out, they, you know, in, our, in the street vernacular, my homeboy snitched on me. I never understood that because we was all enemies of the same guy. And that one guy was all enemies of us. 
So how do you become loyal to him by telling on me? I never understood that because I was raised in a mentality that I would never crack. I would never fold. I would never be disloyal. I would never, I grew up like that. I would never tell on my, I didn't even learn how to snitch from the life. And I learned how not to snitch or tell from my mother. And you spent the next 34 years? Yeah. The from, next 34 years in jail. From January 87 to February 4th, 2021, I was incarcerated for the murder of Jerome Richardson. Right. And you talked about yourself. You called yourself a lion cub. Yeah. Uh, Can you talk to me about that? Well, if you ever watched like animal shows and whatnot, and whether they narrate or you just watch them. But Only if, the ones narrated by Snoop. Yeah. Or, or uh, <laughs> David Attenborough. Right. Yeah. So those are great. Right. Really so, good. so, so even some other ones, like I watch them, like I watch them all. That's one of my cool down hobbies yeah, that I like do. A, right. Yeah. It's coping right, skills. Like a way to like relax yeah, yourself. Absolutely. So, yeah. so, so the lion cub, you know, he comes up of age in a desperate, a desperate struggle for life. Um, he has to eat. He has to walk. His eyes has to be open at a certain time to ensure his survival. And he has to be on every meal. Uh, he cannot miss two meals. He cannot become injured. He cannot, any of the things that, were, would, that would derail him being a full-maned male lion, the mother and the pride the father teaches him immediately it's ongoing. Well, with me, my mother, and uh, uncles and cousins, that's what, that's what my life was. My mother would call from jail and at nine years old, we would answer the phone. We would hustle around our neighborhood or to our family members and go get my mother bail money so she can get out of jail. What other nine year olds are doing that in wherever these other people are? I don't know, but people in my hood, we did that. <laughs> and so do you think that strength that you, that you developed early, did that help you make it through well, the prison system? Well. Yes and no. Yes, in the fact that you have to be able to stand on your own. You have to be what we call a stand-up, stand-alone. Um, I'm not a person that would bark at you in a crowd of people and then see you and be like, hey, Jane, uh, what's going on? No, if it's F you, then it's F you when it's with 20 of us or 30 of us, and it's F you when I'm alone with this pistol. F you. Mm. So, but in prison you're outgunned by the fact that your experience is minimal to none. You're younger, you're smaller, you would, this is the elite. I mean, this is criminal genius is the day you walk in. It like this shit, for me, it was crazy. Like- You're smiling. Yeah, it was. It yeah, was, so what is that, what? It was like, like, like it was like, a, about? it was like empowering. Because you were part of the elite then? Yes. Wow. Yes. So you were like, these these are all the bad guys and I'm here. Yes. Amazing. Yes. Yes. That's that is did, crazy. Right. Did that stay with you? Absolutely. That's why I did 34 wow. years in prison. Wow. <laughs> yes, that's part of the reason I did 34 years in prison. Because the and 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 it's a certain level of consciousness that happens. Well, when you come in at 17 and, you know, you, you have slogans, you know, 
Gang members have slogans. You've seen them on TV. They throw their fingers up. All that's a part of the ceremony of the culture that 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 gang members do. Right. It's like tribalism. It's right? Exactly. It's and all the yeah. totems and all of those things, whether you have a teardrop, whether you have a, a homegirl who had been killed with her face tattooed on your shoulder, y'all bonded for life your children's names and you have certain guys who were there when their children were born they have the ink printed feet on their chest all of this is a part of the same culture the same mentality but when you get to prison it's on diabolic steroids right because everybody in here but you adisa has been tested Everybody you but knew. you, Adisa, yeah. has been through the crucible. You have not. You're 18 and nobody is cheering for you. So for me, I understood at the minimum that violence is still a universal language. That's a universal language. And in a lot of circles, it's a celebrated language. It's the language of worship. So for me, it was learning how to not only communicate that, but to do it in such a way that it would reverberate. I didn't just stab you. I let everybody else know that I would stab them too. I wouldn't just fight you. I'm fighting everybody who look like you. Because you're still a crip no. when you're in there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Then I was still a crip. Yeah. Yeah. And you I, answered no just now because, because you're saying you're not a crip anymore. No, I, I became a Muslim. See, but so you found Islam in? In prison. And, and what it was, and a lot of people might not know, even if they care to know, is that a lot of people... And when people say they, they, they come into religion in prison, which is true, but it's, you have to look at it from a point of view of a social network. See, we, we, we can hear all the what people think is negative about prison but, or religion, but what is the positive? You see, my mother was a better human being as a Jehovah Witness than she was as just my mother. That's a fact. She stopped doing drugs. She stopped running the street. She, so I have to say, even though me and what she believe in, we might not be in disagree, be, we not, might agree on, we might not never agree on that. But it would be unjust for me to say that her beliefs in that religion has not helped her or benefited her. That would be a lie. And you found that in prison with the Brotherhood of Islam. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's other people like you that come from where you come from that have already transitioned out of that gang reactionary type mentality. You know what I'm saying? Like you, you children found gangs, men found organizations. You know what I'm saying? So that's why the gang life is so appealing to children. It's like going down the, the uh, grocery store aisle full of uh, cereal and you see you know, Lucky Charms and uh, Tricks and all these other 
high sweet fructose cereal. Kids go banana form. When you were a kid, when I was a kid, it's still the same off the level insanity when children walk down that aisle and they want a cereal. Yep, yep. Crips are like that. They, the, the brand is because children love it, even though it's going to kill them. It's going to kill you. I've expressed like that. It's going to kill you one way or another. I've but been you to want the, it. Absolutely. 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 Um, because the identity purpose, when you come up and you're establishing your identity, this is what you, this becomes your identity. Uh, I don't know if you know who Tookie Williams was, but Took said he talked about the identity. That's why his book was Blue Rage and Black Redemption. The black symbolizes the, the reconnecting of who, what his humanity was born out of. You see what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. that's what happens. Most blacks, we don't know our history or our, or our culture and that which we do know we've been made to hate or dislike. So we form these other identities that keep us separate and apart. The individualism that plays a part of black culture is because on plantations, you had to be an individual. So when you go to prison, you start learning these things. You start reading and you start studying. And there's no lack of knowledge. There's no lack of wisdom. There's no lack of books. There's no lack of people trying to help you. See, that's a very important thing that people don't realize that you could get trades in prison in 87 and 89 and 72. And they had trades. They had things that you could do where when you got out of prison, you could uh make a living but the mentality took you away from that that's for the squares you know i'm in the street life i'm not finna get no job and if i do it's gonna be down on the list of my priorities well <laughs> they locked your ass up long enough for you to recognize now that uh you need to be at work at seven <laughs> hmm. so that's what happened so but criminal genius, the spirit of don't give up, the spirit of that empowerment, you know, because it really was us versus the police, you know, the COs. I remember first went going in, oh, it was like the, one of the best things I ever did in my life. I went in his, his igloo and I stole his lunch. It was crazy. <laughs> it was crazy. I you felt, went into the cop car and did no, no. I went into no. I went into so in prison and you. Oh, have, you mean in prison in now? Prison. I thought you were talking about when you were a kid. No, no. In prison, they have the office or areas where see corrections officers keep their you know the belongings. Yeah, their stuff. Yeah, yeah, their lunch so, or whatever. Their their personal belongings. I went in there and cracked that dude's igloo open and uh, I ate a turkey sandwich with tomato and avocado and romaine lettuce. I, he had a piece of German chocolate cake and aluminum foil. And then he was going on and on about the, his lunch. He was hot, he was pissed, he, he was furious. <laughs> and, I, and I threw the uh, aluminum foil at him from the, like the third tier. Like, oh, man, geez, shut up. You. Yeah, yeah, shut up. That's what we do here. You come here to work, and if we want you to go home to your wife and family, we'll make that decision. 
But when you come to work, you understand you could die here just like us. I want you to know that. Yeah. So how long were you there until you found Islam? Uh, oh, 10 years. Well, really, really, you, 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 it's, it's ever, it's present because you have older. Right, but where, like when you went into it, um, I would say, I will say 96, probably 1996. So 97, around there, about 10 years. But I've been going to Islamic service from the time I got to prison because it's um, one of those things where that's how you can get out your cell. So I, see. I would go to the Christian service and be like Malcolm X was in, in, the, in, the, in his service with, on, on the movie with, with Spike Lee. We'd go in yep. there and we would just disrupt the service at all. Uh, poor man, tried his best. You know what I mean? But so, you know, Islam wasn't really like that. Islam is being taught by one of your peers, whereas the Christians had a white dude from outside. Yeah, that comes in. Right? Yeah, the missionary. So that's how I started. I would call them all missionaries. Hmm. So I was always antagonistic. I'm always the bad guy. Like it's even when watching TV, <laughs> we would watch the Super Friends and the Super Friends arch enemy was the Legion of Doom. And my mother said, why would you, why are you saying you with them? I said, because your son won't let me be a super friend. So I have to be the Legion of Doom. So it's, it's been like that, like playing with it yeah. or not. That's what I gravitated towards. That's what it was. That's where I believe respect, honor, loyalty, masculinity was founded in that type of mentality. As toxic as it was. I didn't want it to be toxic at the time. You know what I mean? When we spoke on the phone, you mentioned a poem by Tupac. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the rose yeah, that grew you, from concrete. Yeah. Yeah. I, I looked that up because I remember hearing that. I'm yes. So, do you remember the line? Yes. Well, what, what he's saying in the poem is that the tenacity to live is greater than the scars from the struggle to live. Right. So you looking at the damaged petals, you looking at the fact that it's kind of leaning to one side, you're looking at all the superficial elements not knowing that it, even those are connected to the, the roses struggle. You're not looking because at as that- As it busted through the concrete. As it came through even, the concrete to even- That's right. For there even to be a criticism, to be a knock on the scars. It's the, we the roses that grew from concrete. You know, we, we came from a struggle uh, of backwards, basically backwardsness, like because of that identity. But I did a, a lot of reading and, and studying and I watched and was able to compare, you know, things that before I never paid attention to. You know, once you got to prison, if you want to know how things are or, you know, how you how you became a slave or the women's suffrage movement, you name it. I've studied it. I've read it chapter and verse. And so that 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 cuts on a, a light in your head, not a different light. It cuts on the light in your head to like your natural God given innate abilities start to grow and are nurtured 
even though the crime is still happening, the larceny, the, the inhumanity is still a part of that identity, these things are happening. These wheels are spinning. This mentality is growing. This moving out with the 17-year-old Adisa and now the 19-year-old, 20-year-old, 25-year-old, 30-year-old Adisa is forming. The, 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 the man, um, I often tell the brothers, um, there's a difference between being a man and a male. When your mother had you, she had a male. She didn't have a man. She had a male. Male is biological, right? Man is sociological. Can you tell me a little bit about your thoughts on the foster care to prison pipeline? Is that such a thing? Like, what is that and did you see that? Absolutely. Without question, it is a, a foster care to prison pipeline because a lot of times, especially when we were coming up, there was no viable or discernible life skills that we were being taught that would prepare us for that other than the same go to school, graduate. We're talking about there's no vocational training. There's no uh, real vested interest by a lot of people, when, especially when you're in boys' homes and you can, you can fall through the cracks. It will happen. A lot of guys that I did time with came out of the foster care system. And I'm talking about yeah, guys Yeah, I've who, heard that it's as high as 80%. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. And, 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 and don't scapegoat the, the gangs in, in, in it either. Yeah, because a lot of people that I knew from Children's Baptist Home and the other group home that I was in, they weren't gang members at all. And I still seen them in, uh, you know, at Lancaster State Prison and Tehachapi State Prison, Ironwood State Prison, Corcoran State Prison. So it is a, a definite pipeline. And again, when you don't have the necessary coping skills or life tools to be able to provide for yourself, then you can just imagine what could go wrong, will go wrong, especially for boys. It happens with the girls also, but the girls, and I'll say this from my knowledge of, of being young, it was a place called McLaren Hall. They shut that down. Okay, okay, so yeah. I, was at, I was at McLaren Hall in, in the 80s. A lot of the young women had been sexually assaulted or abused. That's right. And it made it difficult to be in a girlfriend, boyfriend relationship with one of the girls because of that factor. So mm -hmm. her horror became a teaching moment for a lot of the young boys who were there because there were counselors there who made sure that we understood, you know, they used to call us the senior girls and the senior boys because we were the oldest because it was always by age, junior boys and junior girls. And then you have the, 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 the real youngsters. So a lot of us who were in the senior boys and senior girls, we used to help out with the junior girls and junior boys, be mentors and stuff. But again, predators lurk, exist. Things happen while I was there. Older male versus young girl uh, type things that were happening. It was always those kind of things that's there. And the girls are so vulnerable. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's, it's not necessarily the same for the boys, although I wouldn't say that I had never met kids who, boys who had been sexually assaulted, but overwhelmingly the girls were. 
there were a couple of them that were were even uh, pregnant while while we were there. You know what I'm saying? Oh, wow. Yeah, it was just like for your 15 year old mind or 14 year old mind, it's like what? And stepfather, you know, mother don't believe you. Like that story never gets old. That that don't change. No, it doesn't. No, it don't change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. See, when in prison though, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna get stabbed to death if you come in there for rape or child molestation. Yeah, I've heard that. Oh, absolutely. That's a that's a that's a that's not the boogeyman. That's that's coming out the closet. The day one you hit that yard and we find out that that's what you're in here for, your life is going to change physically. So tell me about the work that you're doing now. It's really important. Yes. What, what is it you do and how did you get involved in that? Well, we it's safety service, safety and service. It's community-based public safety. So in this climate, political climate, racial climate, racialized climate, uh, institutionalized climate, not just of race, but just questioning the institutions of government, the apparatus, everything about what makes America great or making a better union, opportunity, and do we finance opportunity? So our company is a community-based public safety community. It's called Urban Alchemy, and it was founded by Dr. Lena Miller and Bayron Wilson. The flagship company is San Francisco, but it is now in Austin, Texas, Oakland, California, uh, soon to be Portland, Oregon, it's in Los Angeles. Um, you can look it up out there also. And this company is employing formerly incarcerated uh, long-term offenders to go back into the communities that we came from and help and not hurt. So this company gives us the opportunity through training, OD reversals. We've been a part of over 1,300 OD reversals in the last two years. Wow. Yes, yes. So you're saving lives. Yes, 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 like yes, yes. In the moment as yes. well as long term. Yes, this is, this is when, when, and I want you to really just think about this, Jane. By the time the person ODs, normally it is one of our urban alchemy practitioners who has administered Narcan. But the process after that is to call 911. Well, in this climate of competition and what have you, some people will say that and have been saying that the police and the ambulance are responsible for these dips in crime or these saves, these save, these saving of lives. But the true person behind it is the urban alchemy practitioner who called the police who revived right, the person. Because you're on the street with the kid with, when it happens. When it's happening. With the person when it when happens. When it's happening. Male, female, black, white, Mexican, Honduran, you name it, we're there. In San Francisco, we line the block from 9th and Van Ness Market all the way down to 4th, uh, Powell Bart Station, uh, Bart, SFMTA. We have contracts with all of these entities to be a community uh, based public safety presence in these areas that's cleaning up we believe that a clean space is a safe space so all the trash all of the needles 
even just physical, social danger, uh, we're able to help intervene sometimes, uh, calm people down to de-escalate. All this while emotional intelligence is being displayed with a definite professionalism. So it's uh, giving me a, more than a job, but it also helps me to make amends for the wrongs that I've done by helping other people. Right, because you took a life, absolutely, maybe a few, absolutely, and now you're giving back life. Absolutely, absolutely. That is what you're doing. It, it, how how it, do you feel about that? Well, I mean, it's always sobering. I mean, this is why we say the name of our victim or people who we have victimized, I should say, is that you you never want that to be far from your thought as you go throughout. Like you know, yes, there's things that happen in our communities as as uh, black folks that ain't of our doing, but the things that are of our doing, um, as a black man, I have to, to, to stand up and, and own my portion of my problem. I want it to be, uh, instead of a liability uh, in the community, as I was as a gang member, I want it to be an asset uh, to the community. And so Urban Alchemy, as a company, as a movement, as a concept, is allowing me to do that. Have you thought about having your own family? Yeah, yeah. I just was recently released from parole February 27, 2023. So I've been celebrating that. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> for yeah. sure. But uh, yes, I would definitely like to have my own family. But uh, who knows? You know, you have to make time for it. And uh, right now. Inshallah. 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 Inshallah is, is, is the, the, the concept, the word, the feeling. Mm -hmm. uh, inshallah, yeah. mashallah, you know, if Allah wills it, it will be done. Mm -hmm. I, I want to ask you one last question mm -hmm. that I ask all my guests, mm -hmm. and I can ask you to dig deep for this. You've been so forthcoming, though, so I don't know how hard that will be for you, but... <laughs> What is the one thing that no one would ever know about you unless you told them? I think that I've, I've been called a nerd, like when I was young, because of the reading, the just wanting to see. I got a fair amount of nerd in me that it shocks people. <laughs> yeah, because you don't look like a nerd in your history. <laughs> don't say you're not a, nerd, a nerd. But really, you know, like all the, all the OGs, they used to tell my mama, he bad, but the boy a bookworm. Ah, <laughs> you know what yeah. I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, hey, so are you practicing Ramadan right now? Absolutely. So you saw that basketball game yesterday. Yeah. Those boys yeah. on San Diego State, they're yeah. fasting. Yeah. Still getting I mean, it in. I think there's three players. Yeah. And can you imagine that, yes. that, that kind of competition? In Absolutely. The, yep. Like phenomenal, By the end, right? but, but by now, they, they, they're used to running on empty. I guess so. Yeah, right? the body is used to running on empty. That's what it Playing is. Playing so hard like yes. that with their, all their heart. Yeah, you don't even think about water. Yeah, wow. <laughs> hey, it's really been great speaking with Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Enjoyed myself. I, Thank you for having me. I really appreciate how forthcoming you've been and how also how far you've come in your life. Yeah. yeah. One of those journeys. A journey. It's not a uh, Nipsey Hussle said, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. That's right. It's yeah. not a sprint, it's a marathon. Yeah. 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 Okay, good on you. You take all it right. easy, all right? You too. Thank you. Thank you, Adisa, for sharing your story with us. 
I think I can safely say that you are now a lion, but a very compassionate one. They're lucky to have you up there in San Francisco. Okay, we have to make a little correction here. Janie mentioned three basketball players that were playing in March Madness and had to fast because of Ramadan. They weren't actually playing for San Diego State, but UConn. And just in case you're curious, Ramadan is the ninth month of the Islamic calendar observed by Muslims worldwide as a month of fasting, prayer, reflection, and community. So the fasting takes place during sunlight hours, and obviously the basketball games aren't all at night. So these three players actually fasted. That means no water, no food during the sunlight hours, and UConn actually won the championship. Pretty incredible. Our next guest is Elle Fox. Elle Fox is a high school student who's been sketching and doing art for as long as she can remember. Her parents had a real need to give back, so they fostered many kids over the years. Elle was really young when this started, so she felt like they were her brothers and sisters and was so moved by many of them that she decided to write a book about her experiences. So at 16 years old, she did. It's called Meatball and Birdie, and it's a really wonderful book, and the art is just incredible. So join us next week for L Fox. If you see something, say something. If you suspect a child's health or safety is jeopardized in any way by parents or anyone else, contact the Child Protective Services Agency in your county. 24-hour hotlines are staffed by trained social workers who will help you through the process, and you can do so anonymously. In California, you can call the Child Protection Hotline at 800-540-4000. So if you see something, say something. You might be saving a child's life. If you want to know more about becoming a CASA anywhere in the country, go to nationalcasagal.org. And in L.A., casala.org. And if you want to know more about becoming a foster parent, check out the National Foster Parent Association at nfponline.org. There's also faithfosterfamilies.org and adoptuskids.org. There's tons of other information online as well, so you can just hunt around. We also want to thank the supremely talented Christina Apostolopoulos for her beautiful original music. You can find her music on Spotify or Instagram at Christina Aposta. And also thank you to Yukon Har for his engineering. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear and you find it as valuable as we do, please rate us and hit subscribe. You can also make a donation at bonusbabies.org. See you next time.